Is the Israel-Hamas war rewriting some of the norms of social media? Will Apple build a search engine to compete with Google? We have the latest from the SBF trial and a big new change from OpenAI that's focusing on achieving human-level intelligence. All that and more coming up right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. We're here on Friday to break down the news in our traditional format. And joining us is a special guest all the way from Semaphore. Reed Abogadi is here. Reed, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. So you're the technology editor at Semaphore. We quote your work all the time in the Big Technology Newsletter. It's great to have you here uh, to talk about a very eventful week of news. Ranjan Roy is out this week. And so let's start with the big story, um, which is, of course, the terrible conflict between Israel and Hamas right now. Um, you know, if, if you're listening, I'm sure you know the details. Uh, any civilian life is a disaster when it's lost, especially in the name of political ends. Uh, and what we're seeing play out on social media is quite fascinating. Uh, this has first been a moment where people are starting to point to what's going on on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, and saying that it's a disaster and filled with misinformation that's coming from every angle. And, you know, basically there's nothing that you can trust. I do want to put out an alternative perspective on that, which is that, yes, Twitter or X has is a mess. It's always been a mess. I think people are getting hip to the idea that it's filled with misinformation. And I, I, I personally think that they can sift out decently well what is actually happening by going into this stuff with a better BS filter than we give the average person credit for. To me, it seems like you go onto these platforms, you know you're going to see chaos, and then you go to secondary sources that you trust, places like the Times or the Journal or whatever, the BBC, whatever you read, and then and people end up putting a you know more broad picture of what's going on as opposed to just saying, oh, I saw that on social media and I just believe it. And so to me, the, this concept of like the fact that they're filled with misinformation and poisoning the discourse um, is starting to become outdated. Reed, I'm curious. What, I mean, it's kind of a controversial position, but I'm curious what you think about that. I actually, it's funny. I, I wish I could debate you on this, but I, I actually have very similar views. I mean, I, I said in my, I mean, I basically said the same thing in our newsletter this week, which is, I think it's sort of ironic that you see a lot of the sort of opinion leaders in, in the media and the tech media who are sort of lamenting the fact that Twitter is not the same old Twitter and that they would sort of be glued to, to Twitter normally during a big world event like this. And they're not. And why can't um, threads become that, right? Um, I think we, we saw some commentary like that. And I think it's really ironic to me. I mean, the same people who were sort of raking Facebook over the coals for how they handled news and, and you know, this public information are now asking the same company to come back and, and, and replace Twitter and become this, this place for news. I, I think it's, it would be great if, if the technology industry got out of the news business and, and really focused on actual technology and not just user-generated content. Yeah, I agree. Another getting, controversial. Maybe. No, I mean, we're going to talk about that, too, because I'm getting raked over the coals about that for a controversial thread that I posted. And I promised that I was going to cover it on the pod today. So we're going to get to that. But just to keep, you know, peeling this thread apart. I mean, 
Oh God, that was a pun. Uh, I was on Twitter, really, you know, in the primary inf- primary source information, and there were things that I saw that were, you know, videos taken from uh, video games, for instance. And I think that, like, you know, you can take a look at what's going on on social media. Take a look at the reports. Like, nobody's just on Twitter, and they're not. You know, if you're just on Twitter, of course you're you're gonna be going to places like the Wall Street Journal, the Times, Semaphore. And and actually checking what happened, and so to think that like people are just convinced of one narrative or the other because they saw one thing on social media that was fake to me is just it's almost disrespectful to the users themselves, and it really has a small. It doesn't mean that social media can't shift an opinion, but this idea that you know one fake video or a few fake videos is going to really change you know a person's mind to me sounds ridiculous. No, that's totally right, and you know apologies for getting ahead of you here on this, but yeah, I I think that's right too. We're seeing. We've seen so many studies that have come out since Cambridge Analytica that have basically backed up that point of view, which is like, you know, even though there's tons of information on so disinformation on social media, people are not really ultimately swayed by that or elections are not really swayed. What really happens is people go on social media and some people look for information that supports their worldview and they don't really care if it's accurate or not. Um, they kind of just want to read the most salacious content. And, you know, I think the the Pizzagate uh, controversy was like a good example of that. Do we really think that, you know, that independent voters went on and read about Pizzagate and were swayed to to vote Republican? Um, it, it ultimately doesn't have as big of an impact as I think people fear. Um, and I think, you know, you're right. I mean, people can ultimately, like, you know, the the people who sort of, I think, are the ones that we want to reach, right? The, the, those, those like conscientious voters, they can sort of tell the difference. Um, and I read it, I read an interesting column in um, Haaretz this week that, that sort of lamented the fact that, you know, the television news, like the broadcast news was sort of too slow to get information out. Yep. And then, you know, Twitter was, was doing it quickly, but there was tons of information and it just sort of made me think, I mean, this is, when you're trying to get real-time information about a situation like this, whether it's this or Ukraine or whatever, the faster the information comes out, the more flawed it's going to be. And I think people just need to sort of accept that. If you want, if you want to read only information, you know, only articles that have been like fully reported and every single fact is nailed down, then you you kind of just need to wait and not be, you know, on the socials twenty four seven. Exactly. And I, I personally, like, if you feel like you have even a modicum of news literacy and the ability to make sense of these ideals, and maybe I'm overestimating this because I am a professional journalist, but, like, you could – I found X to be extremely useful, actually, in the early hours just to figure out what's going on, uh, however horrible it was. Now, there has been an interesting shifting of norms, which I want to talk to you about, which is that the right has long come after the left for cancel culture, basing, basically holding up things that people might have said at one time and – you know, contacting their employer or making it public and and making sure that there's enough scorn that this these people's lives are ruined. And now there's actually been a a, a almost I think Marshall Kosloff, who's a host of the Realignment, calls this you know a reverse or cancel culture or a can, cancel culture flipperoo, uh, switcheroo. And what we've seen actually is there have been members of the left that have come out and. They have praised Hamas's actions on uh, this past, last weekend, right, where they killed all the innocent 
civilians. I mean, we're talking about a death toll of like around 1,300, maybe 200 of them uh, were military. And and what's happened is the right has, has basically elevated the people who have, uh, uh, you know, came out in praise of Hamas and caused the same situation to happen to them. So there is this, for instance, this NYU... Uh, law Bar Association president, her name was, uh, sorry, their name is Rhina Workman, um, who said that the attack was necessary, sort of a necessary outcome and a need of, for resistance. Um, and they were working, they were had a job offer from this firm, Winston and Strawn, and was raked over the coals to the point where Winston and Strawn uh, canceled her letter of employment, or their letter of employment. So, I'm curious what what you make of this. Uh, is this sort of like the end of this like sort of debate over cancel culture? I mean, to me, it seems like you know this whole this whole thing might have been silly. Like basically, like if you say dumb things and do dumb things, there's going to be consequences, no matter who you are or what side of the aisle you sit on. Yeah, I. It's a really interesting way of putting it. The cancel culture flipperoo. There's so much hypocrisy on on every side of that, right? As you as you pointed out, I mean, it's the same thing with the free speech debate, right? Everybody, everybody wants free speech until there's speech they don't like, and then they want to silence it, right? And you know, I I think we should take a step back and look at this and and say, look, I mean, I think it's horrible that people would come out and and praise Hamas. I mean, just. I could not disagree more. I think it's there's probably a lot of anti-Semitism behind that. Uh, Just that also sentiment. a certain level of callousness to, after you see so many like families murdered together, and you know there's there the context notwithstanding, no matter what happens, your family gets murdered together, whether they're in Israel or Gaza or wherever, to come out and praise the people who did that is craven and it's sick. Yeah, it, I completely agree with that. I mean, it's 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 horrible, and you know, I am I am Jewish, and you know, it's 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 very painful to watch. I mean, I think there's we're still sort of all in the the grieving period right now, and but I, I think you know, I still sort of it still kind of makes me uncomfortable that this person would would lose their job, or that the thing that really was bad I thought was that. I think it was, um, I think it was Ackman, right? Who was call- Bill Ackman, right. who was calling for like a list of, of names of people to, you know, who who like signed on to these letters at universities, and I don't know. I mean, people do dumb things. They say dumb things when they're in college. Um, their views change. I, I think I think you know we should be like somewhat understanding about words, um, and and that goes I think across the the political spectrum. I, I think. The can the early cancel culture, which was which came from the left, where you know we were people were being like sort of having their lives ruined for for callous or you know kind of dumb things they said on Twitter. I mean that made me uncomfortable. Um, you know I think people just need to sometimes have a little more, just be a little more understanding, give people a little bit more leeway, and maybe try to persuade them or like change their worldview if you don't agree with it, rather than just try to silence it. Yeah, it's it's a good point. So I personally saw there's a truck that was driving around Harvard uh, this week, which had like the names and faces, I believe, of some of the people in these student organizations that had signed on uh, a letter condemning Israel in the face of the Hamas attacks. That to me felt overboard. The the Rhino Workman thing is, is a little bit more complicated. I mean, to have somebody come out full-throated in support of a terror group that just lit up, you know, 1,400 people and 
took a bunch of hostages. I mean, to me, I think it's well within the rights of an employer to say, listen, you're going to be working next to people. Um, and I don't think the people in our law firm are going to want someone that supports a terrorist group with them. Yeah. You made a mistake. It's a consequence for a mistake. I don't think this has anything to do with cancel culture or whatever it is. Simply a matter of fact that that you, you have to have values in a company, you know, and, and when it comes down to it, if they don't want to have that person working at their firm, I think they're within their rights. Just yeah, and I'm sure, no, and I'm sure they have policies about social media and sort of saying things that could embarrass the firm. I mean, every right. company does. And you, you can know, only people, imagine their mentions and like the phone, the voicemails of the partners after they, I mean, they saw that. <laughs> oh Crazy. yeah. And of, yeah. And of course, I mean, you're talking about, you know, a firm in New York who probably has many, many Jews working there and, you know, we're still, I mean, it's, it's, it, it actually kind of shows a, a real lack of judgment to do that. And I think that's, that may be the, the bigger issue um, or the more pertinent issue, right? Where, where you're talking about employing someone at a, you know, very prestigious law firm like that. Yeah. Do you, I mean, it's kind of this thing bubbled up on social media this week. I, I, it's worth bringing up that I'm curious what you think about these folks that are like all into like social activism all throughout college. And then they just go ahead and take a job at a corporate law firm. It's like, it feels so incongruous <laughs> to me, but. Right. Well, I think everybody's a little bit hypocritical. Uh, that's yeah, my, that's, that's my, good, my worldview as I, yeah. <laughs> as I, as I get older. I mean, we all, we all are hypocritical. We all, you know, like I talk about climate change and drive a, you know, an SUV around the Bay area. And it's, 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 you know, you can't escape that. Um, so right. I've, I've tried not to judge people as much these days, but <laughs> I do agree. It's ironic. Sometimes it's, it's hard. So one more thing about this, which is you mentioned it, but the free speech debate. So we heard so much uh, about from the right, especially about the right to free speech. And it's sort of interesting because this whole free speech movement started on the left. Like if you think about like the big protests in Berkeley back in the 70s, this was all about free speech and the right to say anything on campus. Um, and obviously it seems like things have shifted. But one thing I am particularly uncomfortable with is the prevention of so even supporters of Hamas to be able to go and march and show their support. Now, obviously, you know, I don't agree with it, but I do think that like the right to free expression is fundamental and you're not going to win a debate by shutting down speech. You'll win a debate by allowing the marketplace of ideas to end up. I mean, if you can't win a debate against the idea of killing civilians, then you really need to reshape not only your ideas, but your actions. Um, so let, let's talk about this because there have, so France has banned pro-Palestine protests and other countries have, have done similar things. There's videos of riot police in France trying to break this stuff up. Obviously Germany has plenty of rules against anti-Semitism as well. And you have Dave Rubin, you know, who does the Rubin Report, conservative voice says, maybe the West has a chance. And to me, it's just like, I, I mean, I, again, I can't state about how fundamentally I disagree with everything that Hamas has said about this situation and in general the, their existence. But to prevent free speech of anybody in the West, to me, is just going to sound counterproductive. Maybe I missed yeah. something. They say, uh, what do they say? Two Jews, three opinions. We have two Jews here. and Yeah. But I wish I, I, wish I could disagree with you. But I actually think you're right. I mean, the, that is the fundamental, I mean, some of the, the most important, you know, free speech cases in the U.S., right, revolved around the rights of, of neo-Nazis to go, to go march. 
Um, and just the, the people saying the absolute most abhorrent things have a right to, to do that. And that's something in this country that, you know, we, we hold so dear. I think we, I think we all do, you know, fundamentally what happens on social media is maybe a, a, a slightly more complicated question, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. And other countries have different values, you know, a, around that. Right. right. I mean, Germany has obviously a different situation and France, you know, they, they have maybe their reasons for, for doing this, but yeah, I mean, I, I particularly feel a lot of pride, um, living in a country that allows people to kind of just say whatever they want, even if it's insane. There was an amazing, yeah, there was an amazing post from Ben Sass, who is, uh, the president of former, former, uh, Senator president of Florida university. He basically said, um, listen, we believe in free speech in this country. We're going to allow anybody, I think his words were, to make an idiot of themselves in public. However, the second that crosses from speech to something else, speech to violence, we will, we will be prepared to respond in the fullest degree. And I, I think that personally is that the, that's the right approach. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. And I, I, I sense that you know we've, the pendulum is kind of swinging back from, I think, a place where you know, I think people people were maybe a little bit hysterical, and I think everyone's sort. And you know, we had, we had, you know, the election of Donald Trump. We had the pandemic. All of these things, kind of, really were a test of of all of these norms and, and ideology that we have around around speech. Um, and I think we're I think we're coming back. I hear more and more people kind of expressing these sentiments um, on both sides of the political spectrum. It's not just people on the right calling for, you know, a, a bit of a more level-headed view on speech, right? It's it's also people on the left. And I think, you know, and, and you and I sort of <laughs> agreeing on this, you know, and feeling comfortable talking about it is, I think, a sign of that as well. Yeah. Okay. So I said, I said last thing, but I have one more part of this that I think we really should dig into, which is, as I've been watching this unfold, I'm curious whether, I mean, social media, no doubt, is a place where extreme viewpoints are posted to get a reaction. And one of the things I've been curious about as I've seen this unfold is whether social media is actually a moderating force or a force that's making things more extreme. I'll give you two examples. So there was a tweet from BLM Chicago that had a caption on it that says, that is all, that is it. And there was a photo that said something like Free Palestine that was lionizing with an image of somebody coming in on a parachute, uh, which is how Hamas attacked the festival in southern Israel. So then there were also messages from the Israeli side that were dehumanizing people in Gaza and saying that they were animals, or human animals. And in each of those instances, I saw loads of people quote, tweeting those messages and talking about how awful they were. And I felt shifting the conversation more towards the moderation and more towards the center. I, I suppose, I, I mean, this is kind of a crazy thing to say because I'm not sure it's true. Maybe it's easier to be moderate when like extreme is involves killing people. Um, but I did, I did find some optimism there. I don't, yeah, I mean, I think... I think it's the latter. I think I think in this kind of a situation, when people post things that are so incendiary like that, the natural reaction is for people to kind of like pull back and say, wait a minute, that's going too far. 
I think if you take a step back and you look at social media, you know, its influence on society over the last, you know, whatever it is, 20 years, 15 years, um, I think it's, I, I don't think you can say it's been, it's had a moderating effect. Um, right. But I, I do think it's less, but I, I think it's less important than people think. I, I think people put so much emphasis on what is said by, you know, anonymous trolls on Twitter. You know, <laughs> they, they, you know, it's, if you make people anonymous and give them a platform to say things on social media, they will just say the craziest things. And you see like, you know, companies reacting to these sort of like mobs on social media. And I really think that's a mistake. I mean, I think, you know, I view Twitter and social media as not the real world, as a sort of alternate world. Um, It's almost like society's kind of like the the back of their mind or like a really dark part of (laughs) society's mind that, you know, it's like, it's like that part of your brain that you sort of sometimes these thoughts bubble up that you wish you didn't have and you sort of push them push them back and yeah. sort of move on. People I think are that's, like, damn, I'm going to tweet that. <laughs> right. I think that is yeah. the kind of that is how people should view social media and I I think that's also changing. I think people are are actually sort of discounting a little a little bit more rightly so what is said on on these platforms. Okay, so that brings us to our real second segment, which is a perfect lead and read. So thank you for that, which is I'm getting absolutely destroyed on threads today, <laughs> uh, which is seems like that happens to me often. It's so funny. It's People on threads are very sensitive about threads, but um, I am being uh, lambasted for a thread I put up there talking about, hey, maybe we shouldn't have news and social media so blended. And the context of this is that Adam Oseri, who runs Threads, has said that they're not going to, you know, ban news, but they're not going to do anything to promote it. And there's been this movement of journalists that has really puzzles me that have been like, we need news on Threads. It's the best thing that you can do. And it, look, it certainly would be good for the engagement of Threads. The fact that Threads doesn't have news, I'm sure, is actually hurting its adoption. And that meta is being careful to bring news on the platform to me is good. It seems to me that when we bring news onto social media, nothing good happens, right? We end up giving every, every bit of news legitimacy on there. And of course the more extreme views are, are elevated, diminishing the mainstream. And so much of the the conversation happens on the social platforms. And so you end up having the businesses uh, of these actual news organizations suffer because people are hanging out, consuming their stuff on Twitter or Facebook and not on their sites and not on their streams. And they're, you know, so, so I said news and social don't mix thread would be much, would have much better engagement if it promoted news, but there would be consequences. Meta isn't falling into that trap and the news industry shouldn't encourage it. And then came the backlash. So, you're welcome to disagree here, but I'm curious what you think. I mean, I I wish I could. I would love to hear a, a debate on this. Um, my view is every single journalist knows that Twitter has never driven traffic to stories. <laughs> it is so much about just ego, right? And the fact that you know journalists or important people are reading your work, and and certainly like it's it's influential. But like it, like journalists on Twitter was a niche on a niche platform. Like Twitter was never a huge platform to to begin with, right? I mean, Facebook always drove more traffic. That's obviously 
you know, changed now. Um, now it's like Apple News. Apple News is like really a huge driver of traffic for the the big news sites like, you know, Washington Post, right? So again, I think this is where like we are all in our media bubble and we think it's so important to have like, you know, this these platforms where every news story is is shared and we can just keep, you know, keep track of this up to the minute. It's like our own private newswire. And ultimately, like, it really doesn't matter outside of this bubble all that much, what, what is said. And I, I agree. I don't like the fact, I never liked the fact from day one, the fact that, you know, news organizations and reporters really more specifically were so willing to basically take their work, their hard work, and sort of give it away for free and, like, move everything onto these, onto these social media platforms really for the benefit of these huge companies or what eventually became these huge, huge companies, I think it was a, it was a bad idea and it, and it weakened journalistic institutions that, you know, I think, I think if we could turn back the clock, we would probably do things differently. I mean, that's been my view on this. Yeah. Not only that, it, it, warps the incentives and the pursuit of stories in journalists' minds. They begin to write for the Twitter audience and the things that do well on Twitter are outraged. Same with threads. And here's an interesting story. So the Neiman Lab, which is, comes out of uh, Harvard, um, just wrote this story about how NPR, NPR left Twitter because of a dispute with Elon Musk. And it says, the headline is, six months ago, NPR left Twitter. The effects have been negligible. Numbers confirm what many of us have long suspected, that Twitter wasn't worth the effort, at least in terms of traffic. And to see what happened, I mean, it's an obvious situation. To see what happened, that NPR is basically unharmed by leaving what many view as the most important platform for news. You know, and this, this push to try to get all the news organizations on threads and to have threads incentivize news, to me, it's just like... What, what are we doing here, people? Like, what what possible uh, motive do you have? And I think maybe ego is it. Maybe it's ego. It's, I I totally agree. There's a lot of ego um, when it comes to Twitter. Not discounting its importance in terms of just like influencing the opinion leaders, like the elite and th- things like that. I mean, I I agree that it's it's kind of like it does serve that function. But I remember like when I worked at the Wall Street Journal. Before Twitter, this is I'm now I sound like super old, um, but like bef- before Twitter, um, the thing that like drove so much traffic was was Yahoo News, and that was because like so many computers, like the default homepage was Yahoo News, and that's sort of what's happening with Apple News now. Like people just get it, and that, those are the stories they see. Like that's how people consume news. It's like this sort of like passive thing. I wish they sat down and like opened up the paper and read it, you know, but it's, it's not, it's not that like people are not, most people are not like glued to, to Twitter. I also want to make this point. I mean, I thought, um, if you, if you've ever read amusing ourselves to death, um, by, uh, Neil Postman, he written in 1984 and he talks about like how television and you could just substitute television for social media, but he's talking about how television, has kind of become this dumbing down effect. You know, it's had this dumbing down effect. And his point, I thought this is such a good point. He's like, the problem is not like mindless entertainment. Like it's not the gong show or whatever the show of the time was. It's 60 minutes. It's like, because at the time there was like the Iran hostage 
crisis was was going on and he was like everyone all of a sudden had an opinion a very strong opinion about this country they had never heard of before <laughs> you know and i think that's like that was so smart and and poignant like everyone is not an expert on ukraine everyone is not an expert on the Arab-Israeli conflict, and they don't really, like, for their daily lives, it's nice to be sort of informed, but, like, for your daily lives, like, you do not need to be, to know what's happening, like, every minute of these, of these conflicts. Absolutely. And so, first of all, no need to apologize about the Yahoo reference. We're big <laughs> Yahoo fans here. And uh, we're going to have our Yahoo episode coming up. It was more that before Twitter. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, Yahoo lives, Read. That's my message. I know, they're still one. there. It's still important. Yeah. And then the, there's like a couple of good counter arguments to me. I mean, for the sake of nuance, one is that there's going to be news anywhere. Anyway, on these platforms might as well have some level headed and good, well reported stuff. Um, but it's to me, I would say my rebuttal of that is it's a balance because the more you enable the conversation to be there versus building your audience and having, you know, your own properties that people go to, the more power you're actually going to lose in aggregate. And the other thing that, that I heard is that, you know, it's, you know, you could, it's easy to say if you're like a built up news ecosystem, but if you're like, you know, an insurgent trying to get an audience, then, you know, don't tell me I can't use social media. And, and that sounds reasonable to me. You can, do, you can totally use it, but you're not going to gain that much traffic from Twitter. That's the right. bottom line. That's the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> news industry, social media. It turns out Don't email is pretty good. Codependent. Email's amazing. We both love email. Don't be codependent. You know, appreciate each other, participate, whatever. But this whole reliance on news and even public infrastructure, like to have like the Canadian, uh, uh, you know, parks associations not be able to get wildfire information out because they're blocked on Facebook. It's like you double. You didn't need to double down on Facebook. You did, and you made that a behavior. And every this is a two sided thing here, folks. It's two sided. All right, let's take a break, and we're going to talk about some, some some real technology stuff when we come back. We're here with Rita Albergati. He's the technology editor at Semaphore. On the other side of this break, we're going to talk about Apple potentially building a search engine. Oh, God, we have so so much to get to, so little time. At the SBF trial, uh, well, maybe we'll skip that. And then, of course, a little bit more about OpenAI back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. And we're back here. A big technology podcast with Reed Albagati. He is the technology editor at Semaphore. Oh man, Reed! Uh, I wanted to talk about SB, the SBF trial with you last last week. Uh, well, let's do it quickly. I mean, last week I said, "Listen, I'm going to go to the uh, go to the courthouse and see if I can get in." I did watch two days of the trial this week. Folks who are listening, we have Molly Wood, who's um, 
big crypto critic coming on next Wednesday. We're going to go spend an hour just talking about the case. But I just want to bring up one thing that I found interesting about it. Um, and I'm curious what your perspective is. There's this narrative that has existed about Sam Bankman Fried being likable and, you know, kind of clumsy and oops, he just, you know, potentially just didn't see where that eight billion went. And <laughs> that was so careless of him, by golly, but it was an honest mistake. And I sat in court this week and watched Caroline Ellison, his former top lieutenant and ex-girlfriend, uh, very precisely go through all the different uh, spreadsheets showing how they had amassed more than $10 billion in Alameda Research, which was the investment house that they did investments and bought influence in, more than $10 billion of FTX customer deposits. And it just kept growing and growing as like the net asset value inside FTX went down to the point where like the Alameda liabilities exceeded the FTX asset value. And then that's how you lose $8 billion. And these spreadsheets were shared with Sam periodically and... He was in the know. He made these decisions. So to me, it was interesting that that narrative came crumbling down. Reed, I'm, I'm curious, like from your perspective, why do people still believe that narrative about Sam? I mean, we see it with Michael Lewis. It is, it really is astonishing to me. Yeah, I, I don't know how how many people really do believe that. I mean, I'm not sure. Like, I most of the people I hear talking about Michael Lewis's book are kind of like, yeah, they're they they sort of think that's like a ridiculous you know, ridiculous view. And I think you're right. Like the testimony has, has really shown that that's not the case. Um, it's, it's a, it's a sad situation. I think, I mean, it's interesting. Your one point on that, and I'll be just like really fast on it is like, it's kind it's of a, it's kind of a side point on this. And this is like my takeaway. It's like you're, you're having Mollywood on and she's this, you know, she's done amazing work, you know, just talking about all these crypto scans and, you know, the 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 most well known critic of crypto, but like I also don't think FTX is really about crypto. Like, and I people say this. I'm not the first person to say this, but it's like it's just a it's just a somebody who you know took a bunch of money in deposits and and took the money and put it somewhere else and lost it. And you know it it really and it was centralized. Like it's not it really has nothing to do with crypto other than the fact that FTX happened to be you know a crypto exchange. It, I mean. Do you not agree? So I agree, but I, there's one point where I'm going to nitpick on it, and I think it's kind of important. And Molly and I will get into it in more depth, but the through line between FTX and the whole Web3 movement was there was this new system sold to so many people about improving the world and a better internet and a better financial system and one you could believed in, believe in and one that would operate in your best interest and you didn't have to trust them. It was just de facto good. Web3 was improving the world and FTX had Sam out there trying to save the rainforest and it was all a lie. It was all grift. And I think that's the kind of my takeaway is that, you know, maybe that we might have some decent use cases of crypto in the future, but we should really be as much more skeptical of people who are coming and telling us they're reinventing, reinventing the way that things used to be and building a better system and trust us with all, trust them with all of our money because it's a huge freaking red flag and it was not heated to me in the heyday of crypto. I, well, you know, by most people, I mean, I always thought most of crypto right. is sort most of people, most of yeah. crypto is just not a scam, but it's just a, it's just another thing to gamble on, right? People 
need right. some sort of instrument to that of a number that goes up and down and they can make money off of it. And that's really all it was at the sort of application layer, right? There were, there were no use cases other than sort of a financial instrument to, to make money. But I also think at the same time, like there are well-meaning people who, who are and were trying to build that sort of decentralized system, that decentralized internet. Ironically, like I think you see some of that happening now. Like some, there there are like, you know, we just saw JP Morgan announce something. There's there's some money transfer stuff happening, like using blockchain technology. I think they don't even call it blockchain anymore because it's like, it's so unpopular. It's like this Garnished. third yeah. rail. But like the, that actual idea is is now starting to come into practice. So like, I, I, I don't, I think you're completely right. I just think there there are it mixed in there. There were the in the tiny minority of people who who were like involved in that, who were actually like well meaning and trying to build technology, and and a lot of them are still at it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do agree that there's going to be something that's going to come out of this crypto movement uh, that's going to actually improve things. And I've talked about some of the use cases, having spent so much time in South America and seeing. Not only the problems with inflation, although I don't know if crypto can solve that, but certainly remittances and just to have work so hard and have 25 percent of your money or whatever it is taken by a company like Western Union is, is pretty gross. So I agree. Maybe it can solve with that. Apple. OK, so this is an interesting story that Mark Gurman wrote about in his Power On newsletter that Apple is considering not necessarily building a search engine, but it's building the technology that's going to allow it to do it if it wants to. And it has, I mean, it's head of AI is a guy, John Giandria, who came from Google and it's been developing better and better search technology. And it sees that this is a moment of disruption for AI. And it knows that the search real estate that it gives to Google is really, really freaking valuable. And to the, to the point where it's been paid billions of dollars every year by Google to keep Google as the default there and, you know, that's sort of the basis of the Justice Department going after Google right now to withhold, maintain its monopoly. I mean, talk about a monopoly. If Apple gets into search, it's a whole different ballgame. Have you been following this? What's your read on it? Yeah, wouldn't it be, yes, wouldn't it be ironic, and I read that story, if if the result of the ant, of the of this antitrust trial was like Apple just, just like brings search under its umbrella and now it has an even bigger monopoly on, you know, its, its, its users. I think... You know, it that story was talking about Google sort of considering building a search engine years ago. And probably the reason they didn't do it is that Apple thinking about Apple, a search yeah. Engine. Apple sorry, did I just say Google? Yeah. Google has a search engine. Um, sorry. The reason <laughs> I think it's a, it's a bit. <laughs> right. that that story, um that story, you know, was about Apple thinking about building the search engine years ago and they and they decided against it. And I think sort of wisely so because if you're apple and you building a search engine is pretty complicated and and pretty hard i mean look at microsoft's poured a lot of money and a lot of resources into into bing and it's still not quite as good as as google search i mean even if apple made their search engine the default i mean certainly that's powerful and important like there's a lot of people who might still switch back to google just because that's what they like and it's better so like 
you run the risk and it, and Apple has a spotty track record. Look at Apple Maps, right? Of of Maps. like trying yeah. to do this. Which are apparently good now. Which but yeah. They say it's good and I still am terrified every time I turn I'm it on. I'm a Google Map person till Yeah. Day. So like they come out with a search engine. Apple comes out with a search engine and it's it has a bad start and it gets a lot of bad press. And all of a sudden people are, you know, switching over like they do with Chrome, with Google Maps to this other service. They basically lost out on that revenue. And now they, they might make less revenue because it's not as popular and they have to put a ton of time resources into, into supporting, you know, Apple search now. Um, and, and look at search on the app store. That's another point. Like search in the app store still is bad. I mean, that should tell you something about like the, the challenge there. So I just think it's wise that they never did that. And I, I, I sort of doubt they ever will unless they unless they have nothing to lose and the DOJ takes away this ability for them to to collect rent from uh, Google or, or whoever. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a natural resource curse and maybe it's like a great they're really sitting on this pile of oil where Google is just paying these billions and billions of dollars and it's worth every freaking penny to Google. And Apple's like, well, that's sort of like they're doing the hard work for us. We're making a ton of money. Yeah. It's all margin. It's completely yeah, margin. Yeah, 100% margin, all margin product. <laughs> like, I just don't see what... Yeah, software it's such, product of your dreams. I tell, it's, yeah. it's such a great deal. I mean, you know, if, if it turns out it's illegal, which I, I kind of doubt that it will, but if it turns out it's illegal, then maybe, maybe we'll see. That'll be interesting. We'll see something happen there. Yep. All right, let's move on to AI to round out the show. First of all, uh, Sam, before I have to give you guys credit, your AI coverage has been spectacular. And another really interesting story that uh, your team just put out is that OpenAI changed its core values. And so it's, you know, six core values for employees. And they were, I mean, these are hilarious, audacious, thoughtful, unpretentious, impact-driven, collaborative, and growth-oriented. Not that those are bad things to pursue, but they just feel like they were, you know, like something that like a consultant would like basically fart out and you would put on your website. Um, now there are five values and AGI focus is the first. So anything that doesn't help with that is out of scope. Base AGI is artificial general intelligence, or as we call it, human level intelligence. Um, and it is interesting how, I guess, what's happened with ChatGPT or in their research that we don't even know about uh, at the moment has so fully shifted them to the point where they feel like AGI focus is the North Star for them. I mean, I'm curious what you make of it. Obviously, your team ran the story, wrote the story. Uh, is it Are we that close that it's worth listing as a value? And um, yeah, it's pretty bold, don't you think? It is bold. I Yeah, Louise, Louise uh, wrote that story, Louise Mitsakis. And it was. I think it, she has a sharp eye. She saw the the change and and is you know keeping an eye on that. We have a, we have a feature in the newsletter uh, where we just look at the, like we call it release notes. We look at stuff like that. The, the AI <laughs> ones and the papers yeah. that come out are really that. interesting. I mean, it's funny because like if you look at the AI industry right now at large, like the real trend is is actually kind of the opposite, which is everyone trying to build these super small models that can run on your phone or your your home computer. Um, so I think you have this sort of like, you know, this this dichotomy where you have like the what what's practical right now is small, you know, customized models that you know companies are building. But what, but then like the big companies, I mean, the way they are going to stay ahead is if these foundation models like GPT 
just keep getting bigger and more powerful. So I see it as like OpenAI really has no choice but to go that route. Whether or not AGI is possible, if you think about it, like the small open source models are going to get closer and closer to the, if to the point where they may get better than GPT-4, right? So that would destroy, I mean, OpenAI would have no business. I mean, it's, so they have no choice. The only way OpenAI will, you know, is worth the, its valuation and keeps getting, you know, bigger and, and more powerful and therefore, you know, whatever, Microsoft too, which will own almost half the company, is if they just keep, you know, they keep coming out with breakthroughs and that's what they're working on right now. They're, they're trying to figure out like, what is the next, you know, the, the transformer model paper attention is all you need. Like that was the big breakthrough that led to these large language models. Like what's the next one of those? Like they need to, they are trying to write that next paper, um, which they probably won't publish <laughs> publicly if they do. No, they certainly will not. Yeah. I don't know. Do you disagree? The, they are open AI. <laughs> no, I, I do agree. I think that We'll see if they're capable. I'll put it that way. I mean, obviously, they have a lot of talent there. But if you think about it, their biggest innovation is built off of Google research. And uh, and so Dolly is also built off of Stable Diffusion, which is, I'm pretty sure it didn't come from them. Are they capable of doing the research? Or, or are they just going to continue to build mass-adopted demos on top of other people's research? That's the big question facing them. And I think it's a big open one. Does that sound right? I totally agree. And I don't have the answer. Like I don't I don't yeah. doubt them. I but I have no idea. I mean it's because how can you predict well, what you're talking about is like is kind of like breakthroughs or like mini breakthroughs, which like how do you predict that? It's a it's you know, it just these are things that like these complete genius polymaths, you know, who who think up this stuff, like th- this stuff just comes to them at one point. Like there's no right. there's no science behind that. It's, this isn't Moore's law where you can predict like the trajectory of of what you'll be able to fit in, into a device. It's just it's really hard. Yes, and speaking of AGI, I mean Google says, or at least one of the top AI scientists at Google says, we're already here. So him and so Blaze Aguera Iarcas and Peter Norvig both of whom I interviewed at the World Summit AI last year, very interesting, very good good people, at least from my interactions with them, have a paper out in, uh, or an article out in this uh, publication called Noema, and it's uh, artificial general intelligence is already here. And they say today's frontier models perform competently even on novel tasks they were not trained for, crossing a threshold that previous generations of AI and supervised deep learning systems never managed. And they say frontier language models can perform competently at pretty much any information task that can be done by humans, can be posed and answered using natural language, and has quantifiable performance. Effectively, what they're saying is we've trained these large language models. I guess they're calling them frontier language models because they want to sound fancy. And they're they're able to handle a variety of different tasks, which is general intelligence. It's kind of a big boast to say that AGI is here, though. It's, I think we tend to think of AGI as being really on par with human-level intelligence, not below, even if it can handle a bunch of different tasks. Curious what you make of this bold statement from Blaze and Peter. I mean, I, you know, I, I would sort of disagree, but then how you, de- it's just all about how you define it, right? 
I mean, that's what it comes down to. And I like I like I sort of subscribe to the theory that that artificial intelligence is anything a computer can't do yet. That that's that popular saying. It's like you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you, every time one of these like like transformer models in large language models, it's it's the same thing. Like it blew everyone's mind. And now it, you know you hear a lot of people just saying, well, you know, they're really just prediction engines. Um, they just predict the ne- it's next word <laughs> prediction. It's not really anything yeah. special, right? Um, I love that. Obviously, I think it's 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 incredible technology. And it's very useful, and I think it's going to change. We're we're really only at the very beginning of this because like OpenAI, which is crazy. We'll probably you'll probably bring this up, but like their revenue is is you know pretty high for for a startup, but they they are like turning business away. I mean, they don't have enough GPUs to to satisfy the demand, so. And that's sort of across the industry. So I think like just hmm. the fact that, and and their model like GPT four when you, it's something like one point seven trillion parameters, which is like the number of calculations. And you know you don't they've like they've found a creative way to reduce the number of parameters that it actually calculates on each on each letter or each token. So like you can't even actually like fully utilize GPT four. Um, and just if you think about that, like hmm. we haven't really even explored what these what these things are capable of. We haven't unleashed that into like the universe and allowed the creative minds of of individuals just come up with stuff. And you know, so th- so they might actually have some they might have some sense of like how how powerful these things really are. Um, so they might they might be seeing something we're not, but. I think, and I'll finish with this, like the one thing they can't do is understand causality, right? They don't, they don't have the ability to know like cause and effect. And I think that's like this really important component of, of intelligence. And I, I sort of think I subscribe to the theory that that, which who knows if it will ever come is, is like the missing piece to, to, to AGI. Exactly. Yeah. I think that it's so interesting that that phrase that artificial intelligence is anything that a computer can't do because it sort of feels like when we get AI on par with human level intelligence, like we won't even know, or there will just be, it's not like there's like a, you know, a flag that goes up and be like, we did it. Like, you know, people be like, this thing sucks. And <laughs> this thing doesn't, doesn't do what I want it to do. You know, it's slow. <laughs> or they'll just start ordering so, it around. And, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or we'll nuke us all. Yeah, it's another possibility. Next. Can you do another uh, five yeah, yeah, minutes? Yeah, sure, sure. Okay. So um, one, well, yeah, one last thing I wanted to talk to you about was you spoke with the person who put together that whole, like, we need to pause AI or things are going to go go to hell. And, uh, and obviously nobody paused AI and, you know, things are good. Um, what was their reaction it did they did they admit that they had been a little bit panicky and ultimately that whole panic was unnecessary no, <laughs> uh, no it, i mean oh. his view if you read the interview it was that he never actually was really expecting a pause like that wasn't that wasn't really the goal and it was really just to draw attention and and it did draw attention and it, it did create this this huge debate and you know, and, and therefore it was a, it was a success. I mean, I think that's the takeaway. Um, I also think, I, I, I kind of think there's a risk in all of this because 
people are impatient, right? And if you say like, you know, the the, the killer computers are coming, they're kind of thinking that's going to happen in the next six months, um, if it or a year, let's say. But if it doesn't happen in three years, five years, I mean, I think people will will start sort of like tuning out all these warnings. So I th- I think that sort of yeah, there's a boy who cried wolf ex- sort of issue. With yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's kind of my that's kind of my take on on that, you know, yeah. effort. I love that you went. I love that you went and interviewed him because it's like that's one of those things that would typically just been like you know this flash in the pan and nobody checks in and people make a joke about it every now and again and the instinct to be like hey let's go speak to the pledge guy and talk about what's happened <laughs> so it's pretty cool thanks okay reed um thank you for being here definitely tough week of news um but but i think that i i hope we did it justice and to everybody who's listened uh i want to say thank you so thanks thanks again reed Great yeah having you here. love your podcast happy to be on Thank you. And where can people uh, find your stuff? I really do recommend the Semaphore Technology. Yeah, we have, a, we, we have a Semaphore Technology landing page. So if you Google, you know, S-E-M-A-F-O-R technology, you'll, you'll see that. Um, I am on X slash Twitter um, and, the, and the socials. Um, but <laughs> Got to separate the news from social media. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I also... <laughs> no, no, shout out your handle. Yeah, just yeah. at my name, Reed Albergati. And, you know... Yeah. Um, we're, our newsletter is free. So sign up for the newsletter. Um, we love getting reader feedback. You know, we're, we're brand new. So, you know, we know we're not perfect. So just, it's a, it's really like, I, I love kind of building this community of, of readers and we would love to have you, uh, join us. All right, Reed. Thanks again. Thank you everybody for listening. Um, stay safe. Hopefully it's a calm weekend. And once again, appreciate you listening to us where we won't shy away from the tough topics and won't get it right every time, but uh, we will talk about them and we'll try to do our best to analyze them. So thanks again for being here. Have a great weekend and we'll see you next time on Big Technology Podcast.